Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. When you die, do you suddenly become some super being who knows everything? Is there a heaven and or a hell? What do ghosts have to say about God? Hello and welcome to the 675th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben and those lofty questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad, Paul. And today we are taking an hour to bring you uh, what to us is an obvious subject and uh, we welcome your calls. The numbers are 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada or 401-766-1240 here in the uh, Northern Rhode Island area. And we will monitor emails, paul at behindtheparanormal.com for emails. Okay, well, in March 2007, we received an email from a man in Wisconsin who had heard me on the radio the night before. Quote, 28 years ago, my friend killed himself. On the day of his funeral, he came to me in a dream and told me that he was going to have to spend a long time in purgatory because God was mad at him. He and I were not Catholic. This really shook me up, so I called the minister I knew and told him what happened. He said that, strangely, a woman had just called him with the same story about the same person. I am now a Catholic. Remember that the only truth is Christ Jesus. Unquote. Now, this note came to me like a shock <coughs> out, of my, <coughs> excuse me, out of my own past because, as I've mentioned on other shows, my father's <coughs> suicide was the defining event in my childhood, perhaps my life. And from the day of his death in January 1961... My mind was filled with haunting suspicions and tortured questions about God and the dead. So wasn't purgatory exactly where you started in the paranormal? Well, well, yeah, you could put it that way. Um, When I started researching ghost phenomena in 1970, I was already studying for the priesthood, so I kind of had that background. And at that level of the seminary, I hadn't studied much of the deeper theology yet, but I had grown up in Catholic schools with the, the nuns and all this, and, and they knew, and they had taught us all about purgatory, or I, I thought I knew about it. Now, supposedly it's a place where your soul goes if you aren't pure enough to get into heaven, but have no mortal sins that can send you to hell. That was the doctrine. Uh, presumably still is. You suffer te- temporarily in this purgatory until you're pure enough to get into heaven word comes from the word purge. Uh, But you're right, Ben. The whole basis of my first case, the Village of Voices affair of 1972, was the people, quote, haunting, unquote, this odd stretch of woods in northeast Connecticut, uh, right at the edge of our listening area, uh, that these were souls in purgatory. That, That was my theory. I've said many times on the show, these people showed no sign of being dead at all, once we get in there, never mind languishing in purgatory. It <clears throat> showed signs of just daily life. It just That's what we heard. Now, as far as I know, purgatory isn't present in any other Christian tradition, and other Christians tend to consider it odd, eccentric, or just dead wrong. Sorry about the pun. Now, in order to believe in purgatory, you have to embrace several ideas that we, in our own cases, have seen to be false, at least the way we interpret it. You have to accept what we call the island theory, something we talk about a lot. Uh, that we totally are self-contained within our bodies and our brains and all this business. Uh, you have to be what amounts to a spiritualist, thinking that the soul is actually us. All of us is can, is carried away from our body when we die, with all our memories, experiences, knowledge, and intentions, and that 
the body doesn't really mean anything in the end. Now here's here's our example of of dualism, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the spirit matter dichotomy, which we don't. Think Although I've heard arguments that this isn't dualism. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, some of some of uh, my wife's friends are are in uh, seminary, and uh, so we we got talking about something, and they were. I was like, I was mentioning something, and I was like, "We're not dualists," and like, "Yeah, we're not dualists." And I was like, "Wait, isn't this dualism though?" In 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 its essential well, form. Well, maybe that's something we run on the show, but people are anxious to see what Coaster is saying here. Right? right. But no, a very good point. Um, and also to believe in the purgatory thing, you have to accept the linear time thing as an objective reality. In other words, time goes from past to future. That seems obvious, right? Well, no, it isn't. Uh, there isn't, well, I, I, all that has been blown out of the water by Albert Einstein's space-time ideas, uh, and remember his, his book, uh, Relativity, written in 1952, he, he really spells it out. He says that uh, everything is simultaneous. That's the way it is. We just experience it past to future because that's where we are in our, the evolution of our minds at this point. Some people do not experience it that way, and uh, very often they're interpreted as schizophrenic and their pockets are full of antipsychotic drugs, and that's not good. But anyway, quantum mechanics has also blown that linear time theory out of the water, too. So there is no time, quote-unquote, to spend in purgatory. I remember... Um, one of the things we were taught in, in grade school with the nuns, Ben, was, and I, I, I'd be interested, because you went through Catholic schools too, um, even though we weren't Roman Catholics. You, you were um, uh, through really the whole uh, grammar school and the whole high school <laughs> thing too. The gauntlet, Did they ever talk yes. about purgatory? Like at Mount St. Charles or some of the... They'd mention it, they'd mention it in a peripheral sense. Okay. They'd, never, they'd never really go into detail about it. They seemed a little embarrassed by it. By the time I was in the seminary kind of going along, because in the late 60s, things were really liberalizing, and things like that kind of... Well, it, it seems to be coming back now. Yes, yes. Well, the things yeah, seem to do that. The trends change, yeah. and things change, and people change. Yeah. So in any case, um, uh, there, there are major theological problems with purgatory from the, the viewpoint of the patristic of, of the, the the ancient Christian teachings, fathers of the church, this sort of thing. But you've run into ghosts who believe they're in purgatory, right? Yeah, seemingly. And I, I know and people. I know people are probably sitting out there who are interested in this and, and want to hear me say, "Well, this ghost talked about what heaven is like," and this sort of thing. Now you go to some of these mediums and you have the public events they have, yeah. and they'll say, "Oh, so and so is in heaven." You don't, no, no, nobody's ever in hell or purgatory, right? Uh, if, if you believe in that, but uh, everybody's always uh, in heaven, having you know, playing golf or having. I mean, you don't want to hear that your that your aunt Gertrude is currently burning in hell. Well, of course not. <laughs> you know, well, the whole burning in hell—that's that, another issue. It's another mistranslation. Well, yeah, it is. Yeah, but uh, you know, not that there's a, there's a negative. So, but anyway, in this show, uh, we only have uh, less than an hour now, and we're going to talk about experiences that I had with entity with people who seemed to be in a sort of almost purgatory-type state, but it wasn't quite the same as the doctrine. And I think if these experiences happened to our ancestors, they would have interpreted it in our narrow human way as something like purgatory. Okay? And maybe that's where the doctrine came from, although it is a very odd doctrine in, in, in the, the totality of Christian tradition. But anyway, um, one time I'm thinking of was in Hastings-on-Hudson, New York, in 1976, and this particular person, quote-unquote ghost, and, and we'll get into that, was convinced that God hated her. Now, not just that she was in trouble or in purgatory, but, but that God hated her. 
Now, I was 23 years old, and I was in my second and, as yet unbeknownst to me, final year at St. Vladimir Orthodox Theological Seminary near near New York City. Um, The following year, they threw me the heck out for doing paranormal research. On weekends, uh, most of the seminary students would fan out over the New York, New Jersey area for various pastoral work, teaching, etc. So one Sunday that November, I was teaching at a, a church school class at a suburban parish outside New York, and after the class, I got talking with some of the parents. Uh, suddenly, this frazzled-looking middle-aged lady came scurrying over. My friend said, this is a quote, my friend said you helped her get rid of a ghost, she blurted. Now, the other people looked at me as if I had uh, lobsters climbing out of my ears. So, oh dear. And I was trying to keep a low profile with this stuff, as I said, because I didn't want to get in trouble with the seminary authorities, but apparently it wasn't low enough. Uh, the friend this lady was referring to was a Yonkers, New York homeowner who had inadvertently hosted what she thought was a ghost, but clearly came across to me as a man having a parallel world translation experience. In other words, a, a consciousness shift or a combining of one conscious life with another uh, after what we would call death. Now, that's our bizarre idea about this. Uh, now, that's the case I've talked about on a lot of different shows. Uh, the, the guy in the Stone Church in Virginia having a memory of, of a plane going down, and all of a sudden he's in the Stone Church in Virginia, and by the end of the conversation he didn't remember anything about the plane crash, and he, it took three days. Uh, but he was the minister of this church, and they were going to have choir practice, and he was going to get on with his life. So is, is that what death does? <laughs> Jesus, go to another life? Uh, well, you're already living. I mean, that's probably something to that, perhaps. So anyway, uh, this uh, new lady at, in this church hall was telling me she had a problem, and um, she what she described you might call a classic ghost issue, footsteps and what sounded like crying in her attic. So I found the place. It was lovely. Uh, that's a very nice area of the Hudson Valley, which is beautiful anyway. There was overlooking the Hudson River. And I found the woman and her husband, both 50-somethings. Uh, they were recent empty nesters, so they were in this big house by themselves. And as you and I find in many, even most cases, Ben, they had their own ideas, preconceived ideas about what was going on in the attic. And mm-hmm. from my notes, uh, the uh, the man said to me, uh, he had a very thick Brooklyn accent. He sounded like Yogi Berra. I can't imitate it, but the guy that lived in this house before us killed himself out in the garage. We didn't find that out until five years after we moved in. And uh, it's got to be him, he says. So, kind of, you know. Well, there they are. These are the, the assumptions. Dead yep. people become spirits, tormented spirits, if, they're, if they commit suicide, and they proceed to haunt the place uh, where they did it. Yeah, nobody questions that. Well, we do. Others do, too, but... Anyway, the apparent fact that the ghost was in the attic and not the garage didn't faze these people. So anyway, I asked, um, anything else going on that makes you think it's this guy? So he came back, isn't that enough? you got to do an exorcism, the man replied. So I resisted the temptation to kind of roll my eyes, and first of all, I wouldn't have done that anyway. I would have tried to call on a priest, but I, I just, you can't take anything in this field at face value. And yeah, I mean, there could have been a connection with the suicide if there really had been one. Sometimes phenomena occur, and I think, I swear the stories um, come out for the people experiencing something want to explain it, so they, oh, there had to be a suicide, and then it gets, uh, like an urban legend, it gets exaggerated and accelerated, and everybody believes it. But, you know, a wrenching act like suicide or murder or anything violent like that sends echoes blasting across the multiverse. And it can be felt and heard even in many different 
worlds um, across the membranes. So that's you had to read our book if you want to understand what I just said. But even in these early days, um, I learned that to my cost that very little in the paranormal is what it appears to be, uh, but because most investigators and residents of, quote, haunted properties assume that it is, they tend to jump to conclusions and never really resolve anything. And so do the hobbyist ghost hunters they call in who think they're experts, uh, and they only usually make things worse. So anyhow, that first evening, uh, overlooking the Hudson River there, I spent checking the attic, the rest of the house, for squeaky boards, loose windows, and anything else that could have accounted for the sounds which come and go without warning, I was told. So that's standard. I mean, well, if you're a typical investigator or psychic, you would have assumed that uh, this was an earthbound spirit who needed help crossing over, quote-unquote, because she didn't know she was dead or had some kind of issue like unfinished business, which never made sense to me. I I never understood the unfinished business thing. Yeah. Uh, So this would be an intelligent haunting rather than a residual one. Uh, some kind of recorded on the environment from this case or suicide or whatever. You know, that was a classic interpretation. Right. But I think there are reasons, if you run into somebody who doesn't know they're dead, there's a reason they don't know they're dead. They're not. So, to further explain, so I was, those ideas, uh, we don't, we've, I've, I really threw those ideas away very, very long time ago. Ben, uh, in his, um, uh, experience in this field, really, I don't think I ever believed those things. Nope. So, um, anyway, uh, now that, now, what I did in this New York case might seem to contradict what I just said about these not being spirits or, or not doing the psychic medium thing or anything else. Um, and this is only the third time I've done this. Now, I want to stress what, what I'm about to say is not something I ever did routinely or ever would do routinely, and I have not done it now in a long time, but it just, sort of started to happen in the, in that Northeast Connecticut case, the Village of Voices case, because I really couldn't help it. And I'll explain. Uh, I was developing a technique I simply called deep listening. That's what I call it. Getting into a meditative state, complete passive silence, and seeing if I could feel any, I call them neighbors, in the neighboring parallel worlds. Uh, they weren't dead people's and disembodied spirits. I was listening for perfectly physical people who just didn't happen to be in the same world as I was. Funny concept, but I believe that's precisely what's happening here. Um, I have never really liked talking about this because I didn't want to sound like a fruitcake. Uh, and at the time, I didn't really want to get thrown out of the seminary, which it turned out I was anyway. I like to keep it as feet on the ground as, as I can and as scholarly as possible, but sometimes things just went beyond that. Uh, it got to the point in cases very early on after the Village of Voices that these these stimuli just were too much. You you had to pay attention to them. Um, I was on guard for parasites, uh, something we've talked about on many shows, uh, the negative things that folklore would call demons and evil spirits and all this. I mean, these, I think, we we believe, we run into them all the time, are life forms uh, that feed upon uh, our energy and, and the energy of, of other beings in other parallel realities. I think they're perfectly physical. They're not spirits either. Matter of fact, the universes in which the laws of physics would allow for spirit beings, strictly speaking, I think are very rare, at least not, at least near us. Um, so anyway, I had my baptism by fire and recognizing these, these miserable critters, parasites, during this Bridgeport poltergeist thing the year before this case in Hastings on Hudson, New York. Uh, but in this case, there were none of those that I at least that made themselves known. So it was perfectly dark in this attic, 
and I did the breathing and all that for the meditation thing, which I learned from the Trappist monks, by the way. I, I didn't go to Tibet or anything. I learned it from the Dalai Lama. Right? Oh, yeah. not in Tibet anyway. So I cleared the mind, went into a meditative state. I was surprised that in less than a minute, there she was. Sometimes it takes days or it never happens. Uh, but again, I don't do it that often. So two things became apparent immediately in this attic in New York. Um, she didn't perceive any attic around her. This is what I find. They're not where I am. But she perceived me, and she was afraid of me. This almost always happens. Because, and it's very common. I mean, what we think are ghosts are more often than not people or at least sentient beings, not always human, because there's everything out there, uh, going about their perfectly physical lives. But because of the electromagnetic membranes between the worlds, and physics, physicists actually talk about these membranes, or brains as they call them, B-R-A-N-E-S, uh, when these other neighbors see us at all, they see us as we often see them, misty or wispy figures like looking through a dirty window, kind of. And so a lot of them think we're ghosts haunting them. And that's what she thought. And it took another night, but I was finally able to convince her that I was just a friend. So how did this communication take place? Well, it's um, actually rather simple. Uh, it, it's, with me, anyway, it's verbal communication. I speak softly. I don't want the people downstairs to think I'm a nut, maybe, which maybe I am. I don't know. Uh, but my companion, whoever this may be, uh, seems to hear perfectly clearly, even no matter how softly I speak. Uh, if they speak clearly, and I usually hear it perfectly well, indicating that there's completely physical communication going on. Nothing spiritual about it, in my opinion. If they're spirits without bodies, how can they talk without vocal cords? And they hear them. So, if they were using vocal cords or vibrating the air, would you have been able to record it, and did you try? Before I answer the last question, you tell me. You're the audio expert. Well, I don't... I, hmm, I suppose it might depend on the sensitivity of the recording device. I guess, yeah. It would have to be extremely powerful. Something that probably didn't exist back then. No, perhaps not. Uh, but then, well, the answer to the last question, no, I didn't try, because that's not what I was there for. I would have found it a distraction. Now, I suppose that's a very unsatisfying answer, because uh, people would like to hear what it was. But if the opportunity arises again, and with today's easy technology, I'm sure I could do that. Uh, but there are plenty of respectable EVPs, or electronic voice phenomena, something we look at very carefully before even taking it seriously. Um, but the, those, when you think of it, might come from just that kind of source. Um, the air, vibration of the air caused by physical vocal cords across a membrane. Yeah. But the investigators are so narrow today, I mean, they think it's spirits of dead people, and they actually talk about spirit voices, which, in my opinion, is ridiculous. I don't know. It's not good acoustics, either. No. Or good physics. No. <laughs> so anyway, um, they but they've learned no other way to think about it, so what else could it be? But in my case, the real problem is when whatever I'm talking with doesn't speak any language I know, which happens often enough. I mean, not everybody out there speaks English. I mean, what, what population of the Earth speaks English? I mean... Well, the sixty percent of the global population speaks an Asian language. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So, it's, you know, so it's, I mean, so what do you so what do you want out there in the multiverse when any you know all sorts of beings may be, uh, all possibilities exist according to physicists. So they're out there. So anyway, even when they do speak English, there are all kinds of accents and some of the grammar and usage can be very odd, possibly indicating subtle differences between worlds, even if they're very like ours. Voices can fade in and out or be very faint, so I sometimes can be uncertain about what was actually being said. So again, I should qualify all this by saying that I never did this a lot and haven't done it in years. 
Well, you see, uh, so what is the story of uh, this ghost or person who thought she was in purgatory? Okay, her name was Zephra. That was very clear. Uh, almost sounds Hebrew, doesn't it? But she spoke English in an accent that sounded almost Japanese. But in a rather, I always thought it was kind of a melodious voice. Uh, the word order was a little like Yoda's now and then, you know, like uh, unfriend you, I will, or you know, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but it was uh, quite clear anyway. Um, this Zephyr was very upset and seemed to cry now and then. Now, bear in mind that this took four late nights in that attic. Uh, I told the confused woman and her husband that I was praying to get rid of the ghost. I didn't know what else to say. Uh, they, they seemed like they more or less understood. But this Zephyr was convinced not only that God was mad at her, but he, that he hated her, as I said. And from what I gathered, she was some kind of teacher in the world she remembered best, and her religion was rather Catholic-like. There were some oddities. And then again, you know, this this was kind of laborious to kind of get through, so I didn't get any particular... Uh, like theology out of it? Yeah, yeah, no. And she didn't know it anyway. Now, I have to admit that she never used the word purgatory, but she was convinced that she had... And, and the word she used was was Maved. No, um, uh, Maved, um, uh, what would be Maved or Ma- kind of a, a, a mashing together those two vowel, uh, those two uh, sy- um, syllables, I should say, uh, which meant nothing to me at the time. But many years later, I, was go- I always go over my notes before um, I forget them. <laughs> and after I studied Hebrew, uh, many years later, the word stuck, struck me as very familiar to the Hebrew word Mavet, death. So she definitely had a purgatory-like concept because she said that God, and she used the word God, though she pronounced it like the German Gott, and Yiddish too, it's it's the same. Uh, Zephyr was very upset and very frightened and described her surroundings as Bairn, Bairn, almost like uh, the Scots will say Bairn, meaning a little child. Yeah. Uh, But that's not what I got. It was like I got the sense of Bairn, and battle kind, that's the word, battle kind, like, and I thought, like, battlefield? You know, a barren battlefield kind of environment? Um, so I thought, rather, that's what it was. I couldn't get her to tell me why she thought God hated her, but she had apparently done something pretty negative in that parallel life as a teacher. Now, I don't know, I've known some good teachers and bad teachers, but I don't know, <laughs> hey, God hate you. I don't know, that's, uh-huh. that's what she seemed to think. You know, and again, I should qualify this. I mean, I may have been totally duped here. This may have been something I that it was, we're always warning people, particularly with parasites, they're always going to pretend to be something they're not so they can push your buttons. But there were no buttons being pushed here. It was all very calm. And uh, I, I when on the few occasions this has happened, I try to win confidence in this sort of thing. But in any case, she was convinced that this this Bairn place, almost like Bairn, Switzerland, but that's not what it was. Uh, there was some kind of punishment, but a temporary one. Hence, the idea that I got of a purgatory-like place. Uh, she believed she would soon move on to another life, another world. Uh, so she had some concept of moving between worlds. Um, Zephyr kept asking if I was an angel. That's the word she used. Come to help her. And I kept responding that I was just a friend. And on the fourth day, we actually prayed together in a very general sense, very general terms, and Zephyr seemed to feel better. Uh, we had, it's, it's really quite the experience to develop even a, a, a brief relationship with someone, oh, it's already that late, 
with someone on um, the other side of a brain, BRANE, membrane. Uh, it's quite the experience of fraternity and brotherhood in a very deep, deep way. Um, and of course, you never you, you know you never run into them again usually, uh, because you know the, the the world intersect that permits it to happen. You know th- these drift around, they change, and the energies change. So, um, but it's really difficult to express that in uh, in words. You know how, really how how deep an experience this is. And, and I know I don't know what, if you want to talk about anything that's uh, happened to you, but uh, like mm, sometime after all you. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, okay. Um, because you, you haven't run into this. In the way I have, in no, the past. no, not really. Okay. Well, maybe, but you right. know, I don't want to talk about it. Okay, no, I respect that. So anyway, I also respect the fact we have a break now. It's our bottom of the hour. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on the very strange subject of what ghosts have to say about God, and we'll be right back. So stick with us. Everything you know is wrong. Hi, I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno. Check out our show, Behind the Paranormal, here on ON 1240, Sundays at 12 noon. The paranormal is not what you think it is. You're going to examine it from a whole new perspective. Do not check your ring at the door. You're going to need it. Be there. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley and in the 70th year of broadcasting to the valley and beyond. So uh, we are talking this evening, uh, this afternoon, about a very, very interesting and seemingly obvious subject, what ghosts may have to say about God, and that's really the beginning of a very long subject, and we're only going to be scratching the surface with... uh, People, I believe, that I was in contact with uh, most of them many years ago uh, who believed they had uh, they were in some sort of purgative state that God was mad at them or whatever. And uh, there, are, there are many other aspects to this subject which will be in our forthcoming book, uh, which tentatively is titled Dancing Past the Graveyard, What Ghosts Have to Say About God. And there is no publication date yet. It's not finished, but uh, we'll be uh, discussing it. One thing, if we do scripts on this stuff, it... it Makes us gives us the discipline of having to write it, not wasting time. That's true, because <laughs> we have deadlines for uh, on the air. So anyway, uh, to continue this, uh, I was talking about uh, my uh, contact with Zephra, a person. And again, we don't believe these are spirits of the dead; these are real people in parallel realities, uh, a la quantum physics. And this is is being explored and defined by by legitimate physicists at this point. Maybe not to the degree we do it, but the, it's it's uh, they're legitimate concepts that we believe we've experienced. And um, so Zephyr and I finally broke contact there in that house in, uh, in um, um, Hastings-on-Hudson, New York. And with her last statement as she ma- that she made during the entire conversation was as positive a statement as I heard from her, you have L me, E-L. That's how I heard it anyway. And I thought she was maybe trying to say helped, which was very gratifying. However, L... As, as I said, many years later, I learned Hebrew, uh, and to a, at least a point to get by, and El could be related to the Hebrew word for strength and even for God. The root is El. And, and we think we talked about, we talked about the paranormal in human history, and the earliest word for God used in the Old Testament, Elohim, uh, El is the root of the word. Hmm. Strength, uh, help, whatever, uh, but, but, uh, 
I don't, I don't know. It, it was really quite intriguing. So Zephra never appeared in that house again. Well, she never appeared anyway, but it never uh, made herself known in that house again. She had moved on, as she said she was going to. Uh, where or when she the next life was, if that, if that actually happened, I don't know. The homeowners must have been relieved. Well, yeah, well, they, I was their hero. Their, right. Well, but yeah. I, you know, they, they didn't understand anything about what I'd really done, and I didn't tell them. No. So how many other cases like this did you run into before I joined up? Well, you joined up in 05, but including this one, there were seven altogether. When I say seven, uh, people who were like Zephra, who thought they were having a problem with God. And, um, which indicates, so what is, what, what does Zephra's experience say about God? I don't know if it says really anything about God, because it's, it's like people had, had the preconceived notions they had before whatever, whatever translation they had made, whatever transition they had made, seemed to have stuck with them. And it's, with some of these people, it's like nothing had changed. Ah, but if that's the case, then what about that guy who wrote that email uh, that we mentioned at the beginning of the show? Well, th- that was interesting. But again, the uh, yeah, if neither, that is very interesting. If neither of them had been Catholic and had the concept of purgatory... Then why would they say I that? mean, Zephra was not... Was, the religion she seemed to follow was, was Catholic-ish, you know, but I, I just I couldn't get a lot of details. But she had the purgatory concept. Now I'd like to know from the person who wrote that letter, and that that's what ten years ago now almost. Some more details, and I did ask for more details at the time, but I never got them. You know, did the word purgatory come up in in this this dream that he had? And the fact, and again, another woman came to the same minister and said she had had a, the same dream about the same guy saying the same thing. So, um, but I never found out any more about it. Things can be lost in translation, and not, not only uh, from people who are moving from one life to another, but for people who are trying to communicate. Right. So I didn't find out more about it. But uh, anyway, um, th- this again, these are these seven stuck out and they stick out in my mind as people who felt that God had a direct hand in what was going on with them after they had died, shifted consciousness, translated, or whatever you want to call it. I know people are probably, as I say, sitting out there. I mean, there are cases where people uh, seem to be in, in very good places, but I just don't get these communications with people who, uh, they just have never happened to me, who are uh, in heaven cooking meals or, or doing this stuff or very uh, anthropomorphic kinds of translation experiences that, that just, I just don't, that just, uh, I just don't, don't see that. So anyhow, uh, there was Charles in 1983. He seemed to come from a world very much like our own, with almost the same laws of physics, and that makes a difference. Why almost? Well, he seemed to be, at all, at all times I was speaking with him, in different parts of the room. A lot of these people seemed to be at different angles from like where I'm sitting, and he mentioned, for example, very high, I, I asked him to describe the environment, very, very high temperatures that we would, you know, like 120, 130 degrees that we would never be able to stand on any routine basis. The world he came from was very much like ours, but that there was very, very hot. And there also seemed to be um, a, a gravity differences. But again, it was, because we had a rather detailed conversation more than most. And I didn't mention that, uh, I, I wasn't going to mention that in the show, but it's a very good question. Uh, so, th- those, you know, but, but yet everything, a lot of, most of the other things seem to be the same. But gravity and temperature, were the, so indicating what? It was the 
certainly a different kind of Earth or a different planet, maybe. So here's where we have overlaps, possibly with quote unquote aliens and and just you know this stuff. You go crazy just thinking about this stuff. But right. Um, uh, as far as the the God aspect of this, uh, but there were. Other than that, there were similar religious concepts. Now, in fact, I wonder if the two aren't related. Uh, worlds with similar laws of physics. And I, don't mean, I don't mean, you know, envi- maybe the, 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 the environmental conditions were different, but the laws of physics were extremely similar. Um, have similar concepts about God. Interesting. You know, or, or those with dissimilar laws of physics to ours seem to have very different ideas about God. At least that's my impression. I mean, I'm wondering what... Uh, See, different laws of physics would involve different life experiences because things would happen in different ways. Also, different morals, maybe, because you, 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 the way your nervous system develops and the way the body possibly, develops is possibly. different. Yeah, so um, not only would different lo- different worlds, parallel worlds, have different laws of physics, maybe they have different different religious beliefs, different experiences of God. Because there was no common underlying experience of God that came out of these things, people seem to be stuck with their preconceived notions, and we've talked about possibilities for heaven and God on the show many times, and it's in in our current book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know Is Wrong. So anyway, Charles was an interesting fellow. Uh, I encountered him in a Douglas, Massachusetts basement, Douglas, Massachusetts, right there in our listening area here. Now, as I said, most of these people are never where I am. Charles was an architect in England. And his English was almost identical to what we're used to. Our conversation lasted five non-consecutive days. In other words, I, I didn't have the time to go uh, at this point. I was I was working at the Providence Journal as an editor. I was taking, oh, no, I wasn't at the time. Um, no, I was still doing editing for for the Observer in, in Greenville right. and a couple of other things. We're in Rhode Island Historical Society. Your brother was... Um, uh, had just just been born that year, and so I was. I had my hands full. Grandma would have to come and take care of when I went out and talked to this this guy. She didn't know what I was doing. Right. But anyway, uh, our conversation, as I say, lasted five non consecutive days. Uh, Charles was not afraid of me, as most of them are, because the biggest differences between his world and ours was that t- talking with friends from neighboring worlds wasn't all that unusual. And we run into worlds like that uh, in these conversations sometimes. So he didn't think I was a ghost. Now, Charles was a person of regular habits. He left his home in Kent, uh, outside London, at a certain time, arrived very punctually at his office in London every day, uh, same time, uh, but he had apparently experienced a space-time shift that had really shaken him up. Now, suddenly being aware of different surroundings, uh, different from those of his office, which he was used to. Uh, I didn't find out whether he had a family life, uh, but we were talking about mostly about environmental concerns and this time shift he experienced. Um, all of a sudden, he was in this neighborhood street he didn't recognize, and that's where he was when I talked with him. And he was, you know, kind of trying to understand what was happening. Now, what I found absolutely fascinating was that Charles saw me not as the usual mist or cloudy figure, as the others would see me. He saw me as a good old British Bobby, a cop. He saw me as a police officer standing right in front of him having this conversation. That's interesting. Now, what the hey is that about? So, again, um, with our views about the multiverse, we are each other at some point. So he might have seen me as I I may be connected in that meditative state with where I really am a cop outside London whenever this was. 
and he was having a conversation with me, and, and there, there was a, th- that is a rare experience in my, in my life anyway. So Charles was a very religious man. And he said that, the, not something I'd talk about with a police officer, but, uh, and he said that the change of place indicated that God was playing with him or testing him. Something that um, he was kind of surprised at, but, but, but not as shocked as I would have expected. Uh, but as in several other cases like this, Charles's memory seemed to change as I talked with him. And the best example of that is, is that guy who was in the, the Virginia church, that, that one we've talked about many times. So uh, on the third day, he seemed to remember being a homeowner in this neighborhood, so he changed into a different person. He apologized for breaking off the conversation with me and then abruptly departed as if absolutely sure where he was going. So not being able to see him, I can't be sure where this was, and that was the end of that. So... Cool. So anyway, the uh, I don't know, this was, there was a case in 1995, too, that I'm thinking of that... Uh, was a case of uh, you know where is God? So and this was a little, this kind of shook me up. Now I encountered this what I refer to in uh, the book Face, Footsteps in the Attic as a tortured soul. There's a whole chapter on this. Uh, this was in a room in a New Hampshire hotel. Now uh, her name was Mira. That's I, I guess it's spelled M I R A. That's the way it was pronounced. And she claimed she had died. Now here's somebody who actually. Thinks, thought that she died, but couldn't find heaven or hell. This was a weird one. Not that they're not all weird, but th- th- this this took the giddy biscuit, in my opinion. Now, apparently, Mira had been abused uh, by her family and had been killed in a traffic accident in Texas. She, it's very rare that this is remembered, but she did. Because there are death memories. She was horrified because she remembered... Um, being killed, but no heaven or hell, as I say. Mira was searching frantically for God in what she called a place of grass and wind. So I assured her that she was not dead, that her consciousness had just shifted to another life, and she responded, so that's why nothing has changed. That's weird. Yeah. So I'm trying to get a handle on this, and it, it made sense... I mean, by 1995, all the goofy theories that, that I have now and that you grew up with were pretty much formed. They've expanded since then and become deeper, I think, with other experiences. But this was a strange one. Um, people do have memories of dying. This often comes out in hypnotism. Now, whether it's legitimate or whether it's not, or whether I was really talking to this person, that's an open question. But she couldn't find God at all. You know, because I think when we have these preconceived notions on either side of the transition, you people have these. Um, you know, when it doesn't quite me- measure up to their expectations, when God doesn't do what they expect or isn't what they expect, people tend to get really confused. And people like me, who grew up in early with very strict uh, religious principles, um, often feel betrayed or lied to even though that was i'm sure that was never the intention of those who taught me um but that 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 things are much that that it's far too small to explain what god really really is and that that was a lot of the impression i got from these uh these people who thought god was mad at them or is trying to find but in other words passing through the experience of bodily death for these people, really did not answer anything. I was going to say, it doesn't seem like they told you much about God. No, because they didn't know themselves, or they had preconceived notions that I didn't really find acceptable either. So in these particular purgatorial cases, if, if I may use that term, 
this is what the result was. Uh, but again, uh, maybe that's the whole point. Uh, maybe people, uh, you know, have this assumption that as soon as we die, we become kind of super beings. And you see that in a lot of the readings uh, people, mediums do, because they don't understand it any other way. You know, people, uh, your, your loved ones know everything. They can control time and space and help out earthly loved ones. Um, I've never found that at all. Uh, I found that love itself has powers that can appear to be like that, uh, but th- that contact isn't always kept because the world these people uh, may not be close are in may not be close to us. Um, now, you and I, Ben, have seen nothing of the kind. As I say, the neighbors in parallel worlds seem to be searching as much as we are. And what we do see is worlds where beings, even other versions of ourselves, are more aware, more advanced in a spiritual and moral sense, and can teach our other selves wisdom. And that's a subject for another day. I suppose so. So what do so what do ghosts tell us about God? Well, in my opinion, certainly our stereotypes are not confirmed. Uh, God is the old man in the sky. Popular ideas about heaven and hell. They I've just not run into that on the. Um, the sporadic occasions these communications have occurred. Well, what's your impression? Well, I, I, I just have more and more questions. I well, yeah, that's it. So why is it? Maybe, maybe it's perception or how people perceive things. But yeah. why? Why do these ideas exist in the first place? Well, I think we've touched on that from another angle several times because we have. Um, Again, these these notions that that we 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 need to understand things in our own terms in order to think that we understand them. That's kind of a circular argument. But uh, we see that we have experiences of these people, um, some of whom we we know have died. May, there may be inadvertent communications like this, where the world intersects permitted, and we hear what they have to say. But we don't understand where they may be coming from. We have a two-dimensional view of our own world and our own spirituality matches it. Uh, if you're communicating with someone you know has died, it has to be their spirit, their remnant, their ghost. Uh, that implies a certain amount of um, narrow understanding of everything that is being said to you. So, you, so when someone says they're in a place of grass and wind, aha, heaven must be a place of grass and wind. We assume there is one one size fits all heaven, and uh, that is not what these people seem to be experiencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly the, these purgatory ones. Now, in other shows, we'll get into the the ones who are in pleasant places and all this business. Many of them, most of them, do not think they have died. Um, whatever death may mean in a universe where it's really impossible, multiverse where death is really impossible, because you're always alive in many different worlds physically, and it's all you, although you may not know it. Uh, but but these these experiences, what they said, when you when you look at them in a in a broader sense, in a multiversal sense, then you begin to see it in entirely different ways. So you, I don't know if I've explained your question, but I think that uh, the stereotypes. You have to get beyond the stereotypes and the preconceived notions in order to really even make a beginning at understanding any of this. So would that mean that our notions are preconceived? I, I ask myself that question all the time. Just because the ideas are developed in the, uh, well, really in the 80s and 90s in these cases, just because those ideas are different from most people's, 
am are we are am I not operating on preconceived notions and uh have I have I maybe taught you to operate on preconceived notions I mean that's always a danger which is why we always say what that maybe we're wrong everything you know is wrong yeah that then we're included in that yes but all we can do on this show and we've said this and in our books or appearances whatever is to tell you what we what has happened to us what our experiences are and the we, we can only do that um, by sharing those experiences and take them for what they're worth. Um, you know, believe them or don't believe them, whatever. But uh, we think that we may be looking at something in a different way, in a new way that, that might be able to help, and that's why we do this. No, it makes sense. So, in, in, in our own logical way. So maybe, maybe the ultimate message is that God is infinite. The, so there is always more to discover. And maybe it's that our own concepts and doctrines are far too limited. Maybe that maybe it's the journey never ends. Maybe that's the message of of these particular ghosts we mentioned today, or who weren't really ghosts at all. The infinite spiral. Yeah, and you know our question: um, Can infinity get bigger? And I think yes, it can. I think it's always growing, and um, I think that it continues in whether it be the good world we've talked about, we talk about at the end of our, of our book, or these purgatorial states these people seem to be in, uh, the, the nonconformity of the experience after the uh, experience of what we refer to as death, uh, that's, all, that's all the thing. And the question arises, as you say, where did the ideas of heaven and hell come from? Uh, perhaps from experiences that our ancestors had with others who had made this transition and the different worlds that weren't necessarily great or that were great and we, we boiled them down and in order to have cohesion in tribes and nations it's best that people believe the same things uh, in similar ways now in pluralistic societies that isn't that doesn't happen but in, in the ancient cultures where these beliefs developed I think that that was uh, considered very important why was it that <coughs> King Henry VIII uh, broke away from Rome, started the Church of England, and uh, people would be persecuted when they did not conform. Because, as, as in the Roman Empire, if people didn't have consistent ideas, at least some basic ones, then it was believed the nation would fall apart. And Rome did. Yeah. So, th- that's the, so I think that's the, the, the basic background of how these develop. But uh, if we're looking at, <coughs> at a legitimate picture of of these different people in different worlds, there are all sorts of ideas that have developed across the multiverse, not just our own. And we may have apprehended some of them and incor- you know, inadvertently or, or, or deliberately and incorporated them into our own religious beliefs. So these are all things that, um, I, that we'll, we'll probably never know for sure, but that, we, we, um, may, that may be possible. One thing you and I discussed in the past that I think is very interesting is uh, the memory Phenomenon. A lot of these people, when the the ones we've dealt with here have uh, translated across a membrane, or their consciousness has uh, ceased to be in uh, a body that has died, the memory may or may not be carried over, seemingly. And some of these people may not have died. They just may have made consciousness shifts, as in uh, falling through barriers that we think may have happened throughout history. People appear, people disappear. It may not be through death. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, anything really is possible here. And maybe that's the message that, that as I say, there's always more to discover. It's, 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 it, never, it never stops. There's 
it is impossible to know infinity. At least with our brains. Right. Yeah. But these experiences, which I've always tried to do with the brain turned on, um, really make you question a lot of things. But I've never run into anything that really made me question my own beliefs about God, which are a little different than most people's. Yeah. Uh, and we, we've gotten into that as far as what is heaven before, you know, the development of beliefs in various cultures. But um, anyway, that's for another show. So anyway, um, we welcome people's thoughts on this. Uh, you can always write to us, Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com or Ben at BehindTheParanormal.com because, um, you know, we just present what we've experienced and we're learning too. Well, I guess that brings us to our Im- immense amount of, anu- of announcements. There's a lot going on. Oh, yes. So our new book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is in most bookstores. And uh, if they don't have it, they can get it. And it's also available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and other online retailers. Uh, but if you're really hardcore, you can get an autographed copy at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, or our main website, NewEnglandGhosts.com. And uh, we want to um, do a shout-out, as they say, to our friends uh, and the staff of the Franklin Public Library in Massachusetts, uh, where we did a presentation on book signing on January 19th, last Thursday. We had a great audience and enjoyed meeting many of our listeners for the first time. And we met uh, Bill from Franklin. Yes, we did. Uh, who calls into the show now and I never met him before, and a uh, very nice fellow, and uh, had a had a great time uh, meeting him. And uh, there's a picture on my Facebook page of and his too, I believe. Bill. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so, so on Saturday, February 11th, we'll be at Barnes and Noble Bookstore at at the uh, Crossings in Smithfield, Rhode Island, for uh, a uh, meet and greet and uh, book signing from 2 to 5 p.m. And uh, also on another Saturday, February 18th, we'll be at the Danbury, Connecticut Public Library for a program uh, and book signing uh, beginning at 10.30 a.m. That's a long drive. It's going to be an early morning. It's going to be great. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> on, the only time you want to go down there was on a weekend because of the traffic. Oh, gosh, yeah. New York. Um, anyway, on Saturday, March 4th, we'll be at the Barnes & Noble Bookstore in Hadley, Massachusetts for a meet and greet and a book signing. Uh, we're not sure of the time yet, but we're going to be, don't forget the conference call on Tuesday. We're going to be I will not forget the, the conference call. The manager there on that, and uh, we'll set up the time. So, so uh, that leaves us on uh, Saturday, March 11th. Uh, that will uh, have us at the uh, Book Lovers Gourmet Bookstore in Webster, Massachusetts for a presentation and book signing beginning at 2 p.m. Now, the following week, Saturday, March 18th, we'll be presenting and signing at the Toadstool Bookshop in Keene, New Hampshire. And I must, there are three of branches of that shop. There are three Toadstool Bookshops, so make sure it's the one in Keene uh, if you're going to go. Uh, then on Saturday, April 29th, we'll speak once again at the 2017 Northeast Parafest in Kittery, Maine. New events are being added frequently, so check BehindTheParanormal.com or our show Facebook page for updates. And our new YouTube channel, uh, Behind the Paranormal Case Files, is up and running. Our fourth video about the uh, famous Bridgeport Poltergeist case in 1974, in which my dad worked with Ed and Lorraine Warren, uh, will be posted shortly. Uh, due to many personal events, there have been many bumps in the road, but eventually it will get done. Hopefully, we'll let you know. We'll let yeah, you know. we we will. Yeah. You'll be the first to know. Yeah, so there are three videos there already uh, on different Bridgeport case. Uh, we think it's some interesting stuff, so you can watch those. Uh, uh, at any point. Flap areas, <coughs> stuff like that. Flap areas, things like that. So you can find our YouTube channel by going to YouTube and just typing in Behind the Paranormal, and you can find it, like our page, and sub- subscribe to it. You can also find it via our Facebook page as well, of the same name, Behind the Paranormal, with Paul and Ben Eno. 
Meanwhile, find out more about the show, our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com, where you'll find uh, nearly, it's almost over 700 free recorded shows from both ON 1240 here and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio in four cities, along with special shows and podcasts. Now, you'll find uh, my other books... At uh, which faces at the window, footsteps in the attic, Rhode Island: A Genial History, probably of no interest to most of the people in this audience, uh, and Turning Home: God, Ghost, and Human Destiny uh, on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes and Noble Nook. But if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, uh, we, in the case of the latest book, will sign them for you, and you will help us keep all those recorded shows free. Uh, also on our websites, you'll find direct links to several charities that Ben and I have adopted, including USACares.org, doing great things for veterans of the United States and their families, and Canadian Veterans Advocacy for our neighbors to the north. Uh, also, Youth Mentoring Connection uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, Tony LaRay out there doing great things for at-risk youth in some of the worst areas of Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, that's YouthMentoring.org. Check that out. Help them out if you can. And helpforhaiti.com. And uh, there are several uh, books as well that are of interest to this, especially our local audience. Uh, there is UFO Repeaters from Global Communications Publishing. You can find that on Amazon. And uh, that has an entire chapter on our old friend Joe Ferrier, uh, talk show host here on ON 1240 for over 50 years. And we really looked forward to seeing Joe when we had the Monday uh, drive time slot. And uh, great stuff there. So what do we got next week, Ben? So next week, uh, that is January 29th, coming towards the end of the month, uh, my dad and I will welcome back our good friend Jennifer Steiner to talk about uh, American crop circles. Also, we still have a little bit of time left. Yeah, well, well Jennifer Stein uh, is very well known. I spoke to her, the MUFON group in Philadelphia, and she runs that very, very uh, excellent filmmaker, award-winning filmmaker, uh, who just made a very, very interesting film on uh, the Travis Walton case, if anybody had read or seen the film, read the book or seen the film, Fire in the Sky. Travis oh, Walton. yeah. Um, very good. Uh, Travis, who is now kind of a friend of ours. Uh, so check out Jennifer Stein's movie uh, the, about Travis. It's just, She's working on just something Travis. new, right? Oh, yes, we're always working on something new. But uh, the film is just Travis, that's what it's called. So that's available on Amazon as well. Which is interesting because he doesn't really do interviews or anything. He doesn't I mean, like – well, we had the live panel at the Exeter UFO Festival. He hasn't really yeah. liked that. But anyway, we don't have any more time. Uh, we leave you this afternoon with a thought from the great Stanton Friedman from his forward to our book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong. Truth is derived by a combination of investigation and imagination. I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno. Thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you behind the paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another